Hello and welcome to the Burning Ones podcast. Our goal is to help people all around the world experience the love and power of Jesus and live passionately devoted to Him. We pray that the podcast is just that for you. Thank you for joining us on this journey and may burning witnesses arise for Him all around the world. But it's a joy to be with you guys this morning. And this morning as we're going to begin in John chapter 17, uh, I've given the last two decades of my life to fast and pray. And I'm not resume building. This is not at all what I'm even attempting to do. Uh, but hoping to stir or to provoke a holy hunger on the inside. To fast and pray believing that we in our lifetime are going to experience an extraordinary and unprecedented outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That there will be an awakening such as the days of old. You see, I'm grateful for history books. I'm thankful for the countless testimonies and the things that we're able to peer into, to gaze upon, how we can learn from the moves of God over different moments and seasons and times of visitation. I'm grateful for the first and great awakening where the testimonies of those preachers said that just at the simple preaching of the word, without man's charisma, without dynamic personalities and celebrities, without all of the green room culture and the exaltation of man's gift, without all of the externals that we've become professional and perfected, without social media and different systems in order to disguise a real authentic influence at the simple preaching of the word of God, that men's hearts began to tremble, that the Holy Ghost would come upon a crowd, that people would weep and wail and travail, that they would fall out of their seats and be under the power of God for hours and hours and hours with the simple articulation, men reading the scriptures and the scriptures piercing the hearts of people. I'm grateful for the first and great awakening. I'm grateful for days like Brownsville where people would drive onto the property and never even make it into the meetings where they would go to get out of their car and come under the power of the Spirit and be there in the grass, rolling, weeping, shaking, trembling under the weight of God's glory. Can you imagine going to work the next day? Well, how was the meeting last night, bro? I don't know. I never made it inside. Well, what do you mean you never made it inside? Bro, I pulled up on the parking lot. I was 200 yards away from the building and I got out of my car and that's all I know is there I lay under the power of God, shaking, weeping, trembling under the weight of God's glory with a realization that God is holy. And I get it. Theologically, God is in the midst of us at all times. He's everywhere. But then there are also undeniable, unique moments along the timeline of history, where God has chosen to not just be present, but to be uniquely present. Where he has pulled back the curtain of sorts to remind all of creation of the beauty and the sovereignty and the glory of his son. Where he reminds addiction that he's more powerful than even the craving of our human fleshly carnal man. 
where he reminds every sick body, every infirmity, every disease, that he is still the God that makes all things new, that he is the creator and his glory is greater than all of the sin-saturated agenda of darkness and corruption that seems to permeate our culture and the human experience. There are times where regardless of how rebellious, how hostile, how corrupt and sin-satisfied the human heart can become, when God unveils the beauty of the face of his son, it is a reminder that trumpets throughout all creation that you might think you found something good, but baby, you ain't seen nothing yet. And there's these extraordinary moments in history where God chooses to respond to the hunger of a people, where God chooses to come in a greater manifest presence, where God chooses to abide in the midst of a hungry company, where he chooses to create a place of unique habitation for himself, where he has seemed to possess a property and a people. And a city, a region has come under a divine canopy of God's glory. We read of days where Smith Wigglesworth and George Whitfield and some of the other greats would go walking through factories, would get on trains and enter into subways. And the conviction of the spirit would hit an entire warehouse. And as these mere men, these fleshly tents carrying the glory of God would begin to walk by, people would begin to fall on their face. And they would cry out with the conviction of sin. They would wail with repentance because of the glory of the holiness of God. I've given the last two decades of my life to fast and pray and to say, Lord, I'm grateful for history books. Brownsville, Toronto, Argentina, Wales, so on and so forth. All of these different moves of the Spirit. But Lord, put a hunger in me that is just not satisfied with history. And I'm asking the Lord to deposit a hunger on the inside this morning that would actually move you and cause you to reorient your life around hunger and not just amen the things that I'm saying because you know that they sound exciting. You see, we have to get beyond the simple moments of being entertained or inspired by something that a man is saying. And we have to get to the place where the spirit actually penetrates my heart and like David says in Psalm 132, I will do whatever it takes. I'll do whatever it takes. David says, I will give no sleep to my eyes, no slumber to these eyelids until I build a place for the Lord to dwell. He says, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll pay any price. I've counted the cost. But you don't understand, he's actually touched me. He's touched my heart. He's done something to me. And I've been done in for the rest of my life. You can have everything else. All right, this Psalm 132 jealousy is coming from a Psalm 27 desire. He says, this one thing I ask, and this is what I'm going to seek. You see, I get it. Life has a bunch of things to offer. 
There's a bunch of things to entice the human heart, to incentivize us, to set our lives up, to go after. There's a bunch of different ways that the system of the age or even our own cravings or ambitions lure us into a variety of conversations. But David says, I get it. There's a bunch of things that life has to offer, but there's one thing that my life is gonna be defined by. And if there's one thing that I can have, I'm going after him forever. If there's one thing that I'm going to get, this was in the midst of a bunch of other responsibilities. David was king. He was the leader of the most powerful military force in the region. It wasn't like David was a monk in a cave and didn't have anything else to do. And that's why it was convenient for him to set his life up around presence. No, this wasn't a decree of convenience. It wasn't a cry of convenience, but it was a cry out of a conviction that God had touched him, that the Lord had visited him, that God had revealed something of his desire to a man, and that man was willing to give the rest of his days to see God be able to have what it is that he knew he wanted. And David said, I know this is what God wants, and because it matters to him, he's made it matter to me. And I'm going to set up the rest of my life to build a habitation for God in the earth. And we know in 1 Chronicles 13, 3, David told the people, it's been since the days of Saul that we've actually pursued the ark. The ark being the representation of God's manifest or tangible presence in the midst of the people. And he says, it's time for us to pursue the ark again. It's time for us to go after the presence again. I get it, we've learned religiosity and systems and military and government and politics, but it's time to go after the ark of God again. And you turn two chapters over and it says, David made room for the ark in the center of the city. And I believe the Lord is extending an invitation to a hungry company of lovers this morning to make room for the ark in the center of your city. To begin to be a people of presence. To rally once again around the tangible manifest presence of God in the midst of you. And it says David made room for the ark. And David was trusted to put the ark in the center of everything out in public. Because he had put the presence in the center of everything in private. David had made presence everything in his own life. And we're living in days where we have to get back to the presence. Where we have to get back to the presence of God. There's no time for gimmicks and games. There's no time for images and filters. There's no time for all of the different charades and all of the different ways that we know how to entice and entertain people. It's time to go after God again with a hungry heart. It's time to say there may be a variety of other things that we could learn to do, but there's one thing that's actually going to shift the atmosphere over our city. There's one thing that's actually going to dynamically transform a people under the canopy of God's glory, and that's his presence. And David longed to see the presence of God, his kingship, his rule and his reign extend over a region. And what would it look like for the presence of God to reign over this city and this region? Where because of what the Lord is stirring in the midst of you, 
there's a fire and a glory that rests upon you as a company where when you pull up at the gas station, people come away from their pump and fall down on their face. Where when students return to campuses here shortly, you enter into a classroom and you can't even conduct business as usual because there's a glory that enters in. There's an anointing that's been smeared upon a people. There's a power and a resting of God in a tangible way, in a unique way, where the extension of God's reign into every space and place of this city and this region begins to not just counter the culture, not just confront the culture, but to conquer the enemy's agenda in the culture. And David said, I'll give the rest of my life to have this. He said, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll rearrange my whole life to where presence means everything. What would it look like for you to rearrange your whole life to where presence meant everything? To where presence meant everything. And where presence was in the center and everything else that you were responsible for found its right bearings and right function because of a priority of presence. And David said, it's time to pursue the ark and to put it in the center of the city. And he put it under a tent. He employed more than 4,000 worship leaders, musicians, people that would declare the scriptures prophetically and by way of exhortation because he determined that God alone was worth the eternal attention of the human heart because God alone is the only person or thing that can satisfy the human attention and affection forever. Every other source or thing that we look to to be satisfied by will eventually run dry. Every other well will disappoint, whether it's a career goal, whether it's a financial status, whether it's an online presence, whether it's some sort of crowd, whether it's the right social circle, eventually it's going to disappoint because it was never put together with the intention that it could be enough to satisfy forever. And I would suggest to you that God is the only person that can be worshiped consistently and still beautifully consistently be himself. We were not created with the capacity to be worshiped because it changes us. We were not created to be the ultimate object of man's attention or affection because we don't have the capacity to handle it that much attention or that much adoration begins to change us. But God is beautifully and consistently, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And through the efforts of a people to become subject to his rule through the place of worship, because David understood something. He understood the more opportunities we have to see him and worship him, the greater work of the Spirit in us to bring us more subject to the rule and the reign and the leadership of God himself. Because God is not the one that is changed through the action or through the moments of worship. We are. We are. 
And David set the presence up in the center of the city because he wanted God's rule, the banner of God, to be extended over his city. And this is what I find in the cry of Jesus in John chapter 17. He's crying out. Now, the beauty of John chapter 17 is you have the son talking to the father about you and me. You find Jesus praying about those that would come to believe, about the lives of those that would be impacted through his offering and sacrifice. For no man takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. For the joy set before him, he willingly endured the cross, scorning its shame. Because he understood that there was something that his father had promised him. And the promise, his father's eternal purpose, according to Ephesians 1, that was being worked out in Christ on the cross. That this wisdom that was beyond even the rulers of the age. Because in 1 Corinthians 2, it says that had they known what they were doing when they nailed Jesus to that tree, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. That if they understood that God was working in the last Adam to reverse the curse of the first Adam. That according to Romans 5, that Adam who mismanaged his appetites got conquered by the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the pride of life, who gave way. And because of that, an inheritance of sin fell upon all creation and the human experience. That this was the first Adam, but now the last Adam being the man Jesus who has overcome. And if Jesus has overcome and now become the pattern, now become the prototype, and he's last because there never needs to be another. He has perfected the offering of the human experience and by being raised from the dead because unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it will not be able to reproduce. And now the son has become the way maker. He has pioneered a way for God to have what it is that God has always wanted. In Revelation 5, they're singing songs to the worthy one, to the lamb that was slain. And they said, for you have done what no other could do. You've done what previously was viewed to be impossible. You've taken a weak, broken, insecure, sin-satisfied, rebellious, even corrupt human creation. And you, through the laying down of your own life, you, by the pouring out of your own blood, you, by being raised from the dead, you, through ascending on high, you, by the outpouring of your spirit into the hearts and lives of those that choose to pledge their allegiance now to the choice of God's son as the rightful ruler of all creation and the universe itself. You have done what was previously viewed to be impossible. You have transformed them. You have absolutely, wildly revolutionized the human life. You have turned them around. You 
You have conformed them to your image. You have made them to be like you. You have transformed them and made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God. And they say, because of this, you are worthy to be praised forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. You are worthy to be worshipped forever and ever and ever and ever. And in John 17, we find Jesus in the final days of him being alive, asking the Father for what it is that he knows he's been promised. We say out of that great Moravian outcry, over a hundred years of 24-7 worship and prayer, which launched a revolutionary missions movement. You see, because you can't minister to the Lord without carrying a burning heart to minister to others. Because this is God's design. He says, and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Isaiah 56, 7. And my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. You see, house, represented in Acts 2, is God fills a people and he fills a place. So house is family that occupies a unique place together. Prayer is ministry to the Lord. Learning how to see God rightly and to enter into his burden and to join him in the ministry of prayer and intercession. For the eyes of the Lord are searching to and fro throughout the earth, seeking a man or a woman, Ezekiel twenty-two thirty, that would be willing to get in the gap on behalf of the land. Second Chronicles 16, 7, 8, and 9, the eyes of the Lord are searching once again throughout the whole earth, looking for a heart that is completely his on behalf of who he can show himself strong. And he will make them joyful in his house. Those who are a family of new creatures. 2 Corinthians 5, old things have passed. All things have become new. And they are now a new creation. And this family of new creatures, this new creation company, giving themselves to God and his burden above everything else, learning as a way of life how to minister to the Lord. This is what Jesus is praying for because this is what he's been promised. And out of that Moravian outcry, we often say, may the lamb that was slain reap the reward of his suffering. This is what they would say as they were standing on the shoreline, saying goodbye to their families, realizing that many of them would never return to hug their loved ones ever again, that they would never come back to be with their families, to see their kids raised, to see the different satisfactions that the world tells us we're supposed to, to be about, satisfied. Standing on the shoreline, their anthem cry was, may the lamb that was slain reap the reward of his sufferings. And Jesus in John 17 is praying for the reaping of this reward. He's praying for the people that his father has promised him. He's praying for this company of hungry new creatures who identify as a Jesus people, who see themselves 
as a family that is the expression of one new man, where every hostility has been conquered, where all of our prejudices and our differences have been dissolved by the power of the blood and the wisdom of the cross, where the Ephesians 2 eternal enmity has been overwhelmed and abolished. And now we identify as a people, as a family, as a tribe that belongs to Jesus, where he has destroyed every human and demonic agenda that seeks to divide us, where all of the subcompartmentalizing through the different efforts of our culture are not able to gain traction on the inside because there's a blood that has transformed us, that is a king that says we belong to him, and he has aligned us to him and to his mission. And Jesus is praying for this people. And you need to see your life in the context of the reward of the lamb that was slain. The father has promised the son for a bride that he said he deserves. It's that great Genesis 2 evaluation as the father is looking at Adam. And he says over the life of Adam, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make ready for him a suitable helper. I will fashion for him a comparable companion. And the father's desire to present to the son or to this man, the bride that he determined he deserves, moved him. And it says Adam was laid down into a deep sleep. And it says his side was pierced and that a rib was pulled out, and that this woman, this bride, this comparable companion, this suitable helper, it says that the father meticulously made her ready for this man that he determined deserved this companion. And it says that the father woke Adam up from his slumber or his deep sleep. And Adam experienced a covenantal presentation day where the father presented to the man the bride that he determined he deserved. And you see, if you can already begin to see the parallels, it is extraordinary. Because this experience of Adam gives us an immediate evaluation, yes, but it provides for us eternal implications. Because the father says it is not good for the man to be alone. But the father also declares it is not good out of his own desire for the son of man to rule alone. And we understand that Jesus was laid down into a deep sleep. And we understand that while on the cross they pierced his side and that blood and water began to flow. And we understand that it is by the renewal of the blood and the washing of the water that he is readying this comparable companion. And we know that right now the father is preparing this suitable helper for the son. We know right now that the father is fashioning this eternal companion for the son of man. We know that right now the bride, the bride, the bride, the bride, the bride is being readied for the bridegroom. And Jesus was awakened. He was resurrected. And Jesus was ascended. And he's enthroned on high. And Adam had his presentation day. 
And Jesus is still waiting for his the way that he desires. And Revelation 19, 7 says, all of our lives are leaning in towards this glorious marriage supper of the Lamb occasion. But until then, our hearts are moved with a Maranatha groan because we understand that we are those that are strategically assigned in a unique moment of history to hasten the day of the coming of God. And let us not become caught up, if you would, with all of the different worldly distractions. It's time to awaken from the slumber. It's time to awaken from the distractions. It's time to receive a Davidic-type hunger to where we are willing to readjust our life to begin to go after God. I am willing to make whatever arrangements necessary to begin to make him everything, not just with vocabulary, but in a practical way to pursue him, in a practical way to go after him, in a practical way to hunger and thirst for him. Because I understand that there's something Jesus was promised. And if you could see it this way, there is something that Jesus is interceding for. Hebrews 7.25 tells us that Jesus is the great intercessor. He's the eternal intercessor. He ever liveth to make intercession, which means that there's an intercessor in the heavens, and it's not a woman. <laughs> intercession is not just a ministry for women, guys. Intercession is not just that prayer meeting for the wives or the women who don't have anything else to do. And so they'll give themselves to the place of tarrying before the Lord and bearing his burden. There's an intercessor in the heavens, and it's not a woman. It's a man, and he ever liveth to make intercession for us. And there's something that he's praying for now that he was also praying for in John 17. And in John 17, he says, I know that you've promised me a people. A people who are going to be in the world, but will not be of the world. For I'm not asking you to take them out, but I'm apostolically commissioning them. That's the word. Even the way that you have sent me into the world, I am sending them. They've been apostolically commissioned into the world to be in it and not to be of it. They're going to be radically redefined by the power of the gospel as a new creation to be a family of new creatures. And this family of new creatures will no longer define their lives by the success story of the system of the age. The world and all of its enticements and attractions, that power and influence will be broken from within their hearts and lives. And they will give themselves to me, and I will be their king. And because I will be enthroned in their lives, they will set my throne up in the midst of them. And they will worship me as a way of life, ministering to the Lord day and night, night and day. And in my house, they will be joy-filled and oily and glorious. And out of bearing my burden in the place of intercession and ministering to me, I will reveal to them or give them instructions and assignments 
assignments and unique commissionings to begin to minister to others. And Jesus says, I know that this is what I've been promised. And I know that this is the purpose that you sent me into the earth to lay down my life because you desire a family. You desire a bride for me. You desire a people to rule alongside of me, conform to my image in the place of eternity. And Father, I know that you hear me. So I'm not asking you for me, but I'm asking you so that they can know that you hear me and that I've come from you. And I'm asking you because I know that everything I ask you for, you are willing to give me. And so I'm asking you, give me this people. He says, this people, I have to have them. And in verse 11, he says, make them one as you and I are one. In verse 21, he says, make them one as you and I are one. Verse 22, make them one as you and I are one. Verse 23, the same glory that you've given to me, I've given to them so that they can be mature or perfected in their unity. And verse 24, he says, this people that you promised me, I have to have them. I have to have them. I've come to lay down my life so that we can have this people to be with me forever. I've come as the sacrificial lamb. I've come as the power and the fulfillment of Passover. I've come as the blood on the doorpost. I've come to pioneer the way as the seed sown into the soil of the earth to make way for a new creation a new version of humanity, a company of sold out Jesus lovers, not identified by the world's subcategories. You see, we're not American Christians. We're Christians that live in America. We're not white Christians or black Christians. We're not Filipino Christians. We're not Russian Christians. We're not Central American Christians. We're Christians and all of these worldly ethnic, social, political, financial, cultural ways to subdivide and categorize have been abolished. And all of the hostility to create diversions and perversions in these conversations has been destroyed because your life and my life has been washed in the precious blood of the Lamb. And I don't know about you, but I still believe that there's power Power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. And Jesus says in verse 24, I have to have this people. He says, Father, I have to have them so that they can be with me where I am, so that they can behold my glory, and so that I can reveal my majesty to them forever. Jesus understood what his father promised him. And everything Jesus prays for, Jesus gets. Everything the son prays for, the son gets. And so we are living in the tension of being filled with the spirit and sharing in the life of God and his burden that until that great and glorious day at the climax of history when he releases his son to return,
that our lives are given over to be radically aligned to God by the power of his spirit and then to radically and uniquely be aligned to his mission throughout all the nations of the world because that house of prayer unto all nations, I like to say house of prayer for neighbors and nations because some of us might not be called to leave the coastline to visit peoples afar but we are definitely assigned to peoples that are near and so we are divinely assigned to our neighbors even if we are called to intercession for the nations and we live in the tension of being a people that the father has promised his son that will be given over as a way of life to ministering to the Lord, right? This is what it says. Acts 13, one, two, and three. There at Antioch, there's a church. There's diverse giftings. There, there's prophets and teachers. There's diverse ethnic backgrounds. There's Jews, Romans, Greeks, Africans, there's religious zealots and Pharisees, there's Levites, there's Romans that grew up with Herod in a religious governmental system, there's diverse gifting, there's diverse ethnic background, but they're there together as a way of life ministering to the Lord in worship, in prayer, in fasting, and in the midst of them, they've established the throne of God. It's the restoration of the tabernacle of David and Amos 911 because God has a 911 solution to all of the darkness in this hour. Amos 9:11 says in those days when you restore the tent of David or the tabernacle of David, I will through the place of worship and intercession, through the place of a people coming underneath the divine rule of God by being subject to him and living in worship as a way of life by making presence everything. The byproduct of this company of hungry lovers is going to be the harvest because Amos 9 11 into 12 says in those days when you restore the tent it will extend into the nations and I will begin to redeem and restore even as far as the Edomites and there in Acts they're gathered together as a way of life worshiping Fasting, praying, interceding as a way of life, giving themselves to God together and crying out for his glory to wreck their region. And as a way of life, as hungry lovers, as this family of new creatures, giving themselves to the Lord and ministering to the Lord, it says that the Holy Spirit began to speak and the Holy Spirit in the midst of them began to uniquely release assignments and commissionings and began to release sendings. And it says that Paul and Barnabas were sent out into the region and the Holy Ghost began releasing folks that had given themselves to the presence. Because you can't minister to him and get close to his heart and bear his burden without him revealing instructions on how to minister to others. And man, I just feel so deep that the Lord is longing in a greater way as I look across this room and I see the beauty of the different skin tones and ethnic backgrounds, and I see the reality of an Acts 13 type community, 
We're a variety of giftings. We're a variety of ethnic backgrounds. But a central jealousy for God and his manifest presence in the midst of us. And a corporate hunger for an outpouring of God's spirit where there's a revival cry that we will not give up and we will not give in, that we will not fall prey to the satisfactions of the world, but we will knock as long as we have to knock and we will go as far as we have to go. We will pay whatever price that's associated with God revealing himself and uniquely visiting this city and region in our moment of history. As I look across Across this room, I'm just stirred afresh and I feel fresh fire in the room this morning. And I sense an invitation from the Lord to give ourselves in a greater way to the crying out for an outpouring in this hour of history. And that this morning the Lord wants to impart a greater hunger and fire to be together in the place of worship and intercession, to cry out on behalf of an outpouring in this moment. Lord, we want you to uniquely visit. We want you to pour out your spirit. Would you touch us afresh and reveal your glory in this moment of history? We just don't want to see it out there somewhere. And we don't want to have to only look behind us to be able to get a glimpse of it. But Lord, we want to be participants. Lord, we want to be right in the middle of the bullseye. Lord, we don't want to have to go somewhere in order to experience something. But if you would put a hunger in me, here I am, right here, right now. If you would put a groan in me, if you would put a cry in me, if you would put tears in me, then Lord, I will fast and pray. I will weep and intercede. I will tarry. I will linger. I will groan. I will knock. I will ask. I will seek. I will do whatever it takes. Come on, let's stand together. Come on, and even as you stand, I'm just going to ask you, begin to open up your mouth. Lord, I'm asking you to stir hunger this morning. To stir hunger this morning. Hunger, not something that's going to rub off after a couple of days of emotionalism. Not some burden that we're going to forget about two days from now. But like Daniel, when Gabriel visited him in chapter 10, who said, I'm glad that you kept praying for all 21 straight days. Because there was breakthrough in the heavens. There was warfare up above. But because of your persistence, because of your commitment and conviction, because you were steadfast. Come on, Lord, I'm asking you right now. All over the room, by the power of your spirit, would you begin to touch our hearts? Would you begin to touch our hearts? to join in with the intercession of Jesus, to be so deeply gripped that there is something that the eternal intercessor is worthy of.
May the lamb that was slain reap the reward of his sufferings. Lord, I'm praying, baptize our hearts afresh with this Maranatha cry. Come, Lord Jesus, baptize our hearts afresh that we would be those who would hasten the day of the coming, the return of the Son of Man. Baptize our hearts afresh in the place of intercession. Thank you again for listening today. We pray that it has fanned into flame the love that you have for him. If you would like more information about Burning Ones, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on social media, visit our website at www.burningones.org, or download our app.